Midianite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On, on this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. So let's pray before we get into our study and look at this carefully. And Father, uh, as we begin to read our text, we see that right now that there are things that you want to show us and teach us. And Lord, we know that this is history. This really happened. But Lord, it's recorded for us that we may learn, that we may uh, make application tonight. And so, Father, tonight we desire to do just that. I pray that we would be uh, settled in our seats and in our hearts, and Lord, our minds settled on just desiring to hear from you tonight as we just study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jabesh Gilead is that area. It's where the, on the east side of the Jordan River, you recall the two and a half tribes that made their allotments over there. There was the tribe of Gad, there was the tribe of, or the half tribe of Manasseh, and, um, and so the other tribe that was there as well. And so there they are, they're on the east side, and on that east side of the Jordan River was this village that actually was nestled in where the half-tribe of Manasseh was, just south of the Sea of Galilee, east of, again, the Jordan River on that side. And Jabesh Gilead was there. And all of a sudden, we see that this Ammonite comes, and he encamped against Jabesh Gilead. Now, when we read that word encamped, it means that he was desiring to take over the city. He was desiring to do war with this city. Now, we have heard of this city before. And this city, Jabesh Gilead, has had a very tragic history, as you recall, in our study of the book of Judges. And in those chapters, chapters 19 through 21, you recall that in that dark story that we read about where the Levite's concubine experienced great wickedness and she ended up dying at the hands of the Benjamites, we see that the other 11 tribes from Dan to Beersheba would get together and there was this oath that was made by the elders of Israel saying that if you do not join in with this civil war against the tribe of Benjamin, then you are going to uh, be put to death. You're going to experience serious consequences for that. And so what happened was that as those 11 tribes went to war against Benjamin, we see that the tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out. You remember that story when we went over it uh, there at the end of the book of Judges. And so there were 600 men of Benjamin that were left, and they would go off into hiding. Well, after that, the other 11 tribes began to mourn, and they said, hey, one of our tribes, the tribe of Benjamin, is going to be lost because there's no more women, there's no more wives, there's no more children, and these men are hiding, so they're not going to be able to repopulate their tribe. And so they were mourning over the loss of the, or the impending loss that was going to take place. And so they came up with this plan. And in this plan, what they did is they said, let's look and see if there's anybody that did not help us with this battle against the Benjamites. And they looked at Jabesh Gilead. And indeed, no one from that town came and helped in the battle against the Benjamites. So what they did, and, and remember, this is a dark time. 
that it, it, all this has taken place there in the book of Judges. And they were making these rash oaths, and it got from worse to worse to even worse as the situation continued. But what they did was those 11 tribes then went to Jabesh Gilead. They ended up killing all the people in that city, and then they took 400 young virgins, gave them to the, those 600 men, and then they ended up kidnapping 200 more so they could repopulate the tribe. And so that's what took place in the book of Judges. So here is this, this city once again repopulated, and they are facing, again, another tragedy. Here is Nahash, and Nahash, his name means serpent. And he comes against Jabesh-Gilead, he camps against them, he means to attack them, and Jabesh-Gilead comes out and says, hey, let's make a covenant, we will end up serving you. And I'm sure that they didn't want to go through that same tragedy, having been wiped out once before, to be wiped out once again. And so here they trying to make a peace treaty with Nahash, trying to make a covenant with him, and agree not to attack us, and we will do what it is that you want us to do. And Nahash responded by saying, I'll make a covenant with you, and here's the covenant. I'm going to pluck out all your right eyes. Now this guy is not a very nice guy. And as he, he says that, he really means it. He's not just being mean. He's not just being nasty. He had intentions, I believe, to really pluck out these guys' eyes because it would disable them. Uh, Nahash wants to humiliate them. He wants to make sure that if he plucks out one of their eyes, they can still be a servant to Nahash and his men and, and be under them, but they could not rise up to do battle against them. And so here he's saying, sure, I'll make a covenant. Uh, you can serve us, but we're going to pluck out one of your eyes to make sure that you're humiliated, to make sure that you're not able to rise up and fight against us. And here's the lesson for you and for me tonight, and that is never make a covenant. Never try to make a peace treaty with the enemy. With the enemy, the serpent of old Satan. Because what he is going to try to do is he's going to try to humiliate you. And he is a master deceiver. And what he does is he tries to trick us. One of his devices is, is deceiving you, me, deceiving people in the world to think that they're going to be able to be uh, satisfied in the world and, and the pleasures of the world are, are going to make them happy and uh, they're going to be fulfilled and they're going to be free. But we know that Satan is selling a bill of goods to those that he is blinding. And that's what he desires to do, to blind those of the world. He even tries to bring blindness to Christians if he can. And he'll try to get you to a point where if you end up falling into his devices and into his schemes and be deceived by him and go after the ways and the things of the world, you're going to end up in bondage. And that's what the serpent Satan wants to do. Just as this serpent, Nahash, was wanting to put them in bondage, wanted to blind them as well. And that's the whole purpose of Satan that he wants to do with you, with me, with those in the world. And we need to be aware of that. So don't be ignorant of Satan's devices, is what Paul would write to the Corinthian church there in 2 Corinthians. And you and I are not to be ignorant of his devices. And we are to understand that he will lie to you, he will deceive you, he's a master counterfeiter, and he is one that will try to bring you into bondage. He'll try to fool you into thinking that if you pursue his ways or go after the ways of the world, that everything's going to be okay, and no one's going to get hurt, and you'll be happy, and you'll be free, and you'll be fulfilled and satisfied, but it's all deception. 
So here is Nahash, and, and they're wanting to make a covenant or peace treaty with him. And so we continue reading in verse 3, Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. Now this may seem a little bit odd, almost like calling a timeout. Doesn't it seem like that? Hey, just don't attack us right now. But why don't you give us seven days so we can send a message throughout Israel for help. Now, why would Nahash allow this to happen? You would think he would say, no way I'm going to let you go out and try to get help from, you know, the other tribes. No way am I going to let you escape. We're going to come in and we're going to destroy you right away. Or you can surrender to us and we'll make you our servants. But I believe that Nahash is allowing this to happen because, number one, of overconfidence. He has such confidence in himself, he is overconfident, thinking that, you know what, those other tribes of Israel, they are not going to come, the brethren of the children of Israel, to come and rescue you guys. I mean, they don't really have a leader. And he probably, at this time, does not realize that Israel has now just anointed Saul as their king. And so he's overconfident thinking, you know, the children of Israel, they're not going to come against me. They're not going to come and help you guys. But also, I think that he wants the messengers to go throughout Israel. Because in verse 2, remember that he wants to bring a reproach, as we read in verse 2, on all of Israel. In other words, he wants to make a name for himself. He wants the children of Israel to tremble at his name. He wants them to understand that he's coming against Jabesh Gilead because he does not like the children of Israel. And so he's trying to bring fear to them. He's trying to, to get them to, to, to tremble at his name. He's trying to make a name for himself. You know, Satan will do the same thing to you and to me. He will try to get us to fear him and, and to tremble at his name. But you and I as Christians, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we don't really have to fear Satan. We need to be wise of his devices. We need to understand that he will come against us, that he will throw those fiery darts at us, that there is a real spiritual war that goes out there, and Satan is out to get a foothold into our lives. But we don't have to fear him because we have victory through Jesus Christ. He's been disarmed, as Colossians chapter 2 tells us. And we also know that, as I mentioned to you, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So James says that what you and I are to do is submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But Nahas, he's trying to make a name for himself. He's trying to put fear into um, the people of Israel. And I also think that perhaps he's allowing this because he's thinking, you know what, I can hold off a, a few days and then I don't have to go in this siege and, and have some of my men perhaps be killed in, in a battle that may pursue and all I have to do is wait a week and then these guys are going to come out and we're going to pluck out their right eyes and we're going to make them servants to us. And so verse five, so 4, that is, the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And so verse 5 tells us, Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they would weep? And they told him the words of them, of the men of Jabesh. So the messengers go out throughout the land. Hey, Nahash, he's going to camp against the men of Jabesh Gilead. And he's going to make them their, 
you know, his slaves, and he's going to pluck out their right eyes. And, and so the people are weeping because of what the serpent is going to do, Nahash. When you and I, and I know that you guys feel this way, because all of us, we know people that have been victims of the enemy's schemes, and we know that the enemy is the one that has deceived so many in the world. He blinds the eyes of those in the world, is what the scripture says. And all of us, we know those who are in bondage to the world, in bondage to the enemy schemes. And we weep, don't we, when we see that. Those that we work alongside of, those that we live next to, those that we go to school with, those perhaps even in our own family. They haven't surrendered their hearts to Jesus Christ. And it seems like they're under the bondage of the world and the bondage of what Satan is doing in their lives. And they don't even realize it because, again, there's a blindness that has taken place. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Lord. And we weep when we see that. When we look at the world, we weep, don't we? What Satan is doing as, as he is bringing darkness into this world and has, but it's getting more darker. The attacks against our children. The attacks against, you know, uh, truth and against that which is decent. And we know that Satan is behind all those things. And so he's working overtime, especially knowing that his time is short and the Lord's going to come back very, very soon. And so we weep when we see the, the news and we see what happens to families that we love as Satan gets a foothold into their lives and... Um, and how he is blinding them and holding them in bondage. And so Saul here, he hears what it is that Nahash is doing. And we see here as he says, what's troubling, you know, you guys? And they told him what was taking place. So verse 6, the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So we have talked about, as we saw in the previous chapter, that the Spirit of God came upon Saul as he would prophesy with the prophets. And so we discussed that in our lives, if we desire to live that life abundantly, to walk in the ways of the Lord, in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, if we desire to move in, in, in an effective way in the ministry that God has given to us, whatever that might mean for you, we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so Saul here, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and chapter 11 here is probably the, the only real highlight that we see of Saul's life and his ministry. After this, we're going to see it's going to go downhill. And we're going to see that what has begun in the spirit, that Saul is going to try to perfect in the flesh. And that was a warning that Paul gave to the Galatian Christians as he would talk to them about moving to another gospel, which is not the gospel. And, and Paul said, I marveled that you do that. And what had happened was with those Galatian churches is that it was Paul that came in, ministered to those people in the area of Galatia. A number of churches were established, and we see that they came in just the simplicity of the gospel, receiving Jesus as the Lord and Savior, being born again. But what happened when Paul left that area, we see that there are others that came in behind Paul's ministry, the Judaizers, and told those new you know, born-again Christians, those Gentile Christians, well, you know what, it's okay that you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you believe that you're saved by faith alone, but it's really not that simple. 
you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law of Moses. And so Paul would go through and explain to them again, but no man is justified by the law, but by faith through Jesus Christ. And he would say to them, what has begun in the spirit, are you going to try to perfect in the flesh? And what we're going to see of Saul's life that we have seen over the last couple chapters, that the spirit of God came upon him and he's, he's ministering, he's prophesying, he's going to have victory here because he's being empowered by God. And for you and for me to really be, again, effective in our ministry, to be effective in walking a life that is pleasing to him, we need to be surrendered to the Lord, surrendered to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, depended on him as he empowers us because we can't do it in our own flesh. And what has begun in the spirit, I pray that we never try to perfect in the flesh. And I've seen that happen once in a while with Christians. Just born again and just coming to Jesus and uh, realizing that I need to surrender to him and come in faith and trust and being born again and receiving that free gift of salvation. But all of a sudden something happens. I've got to do this. I, I've got to prove myself. I've got to gain the approval of God. I've got to try to work in a way that, that you know, I can gain God's approval or earn my salvation or whatever it might be. And we try to do things out of flesh or you know, we begin to rely on our own might, our own intellect. And of course, it's not by might nor by powers, but by spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And I pray that this church that has been a wonderful work of God's Holy Spirit, that we would never ever come to the point where we try to perfect it in the flesh. But just allowing the Lord to, to move in a way that, Lord, what is it that you want to do? And a beautiful work of the Holy Spirit is, is what my desire is, and I know it is for you as well, in your life personally and in this church corporately. So Saul here, we're going to see after this chapter, he's going to try to perfect things in the flesh, and it's going to be his downfall. So the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. But notice here also in verse 6 that his anger was greatly aroused. And when you read that, you think, well, of course, Saul, he, he's, he's angered. He has right to be angry. What we're going to see on Sunday, we're going to see that Jesus, he's going to go into the synagogue there in Capernaum. The, the Pharisees have begun this contention and this dispute with Jesus. And we saw it last Sunday. If you were here, you recall how it was the religious leaders that came to Jesus and, and, and they said to Jesus, why doesn't your disciples fast like, you know, like we do? And Jesus said, how can they fast when the bridegroom is with them? You recall that Jesus, that he called Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him and then it was Matthew that had Jesus over to his house to meet all the other tax collectors and sinners. And it was the Pharisees that scoffed and they said, why does he do that? Why does he hang out with them? And Jesus said, because they have needed the physician. I've come to call sinners into repentance is what I have done. He was clarifying his mission. And what we're going to see this Sunday is that that confrontation that they have with Jesus is going to escalate and it's going to continue. They're going to come and they're going to rebuke Jesus' disciples, as we will see this Sunday, for plucking grains, you know, heads of grain in the field on the Sabbath day. And it was the Pharisees that was so determined to keep the, the Sabbath day perfectly that they said, what your disciples are doing is not lawful. Now, picking heads of grain in the field, 
it was lawful for them to do that. But the Pharisees were saying, not on the Sabbath day, because that's work. They're rubbing the, the grain in their hands, and that's considered work. And so if there is one thing that the Pharisees were really touchy about, that was concerning the keeping of the Sabbath. And what they had done is make, made all these laws and in in details about what it meant to keep the Sabbath day. And so this, 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 this confrontation that they have with Jesus' disciples, because they were doing it on the Sabbath day, and then it would go into the synagogue, as we're going to see, and there's going to be a man with a withered hand. And it's the Pharisees that didn't care about the man who's sitting in the back. He's hurting. He's there, and, and the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus to see if he'll heal on the Sabbath day. And Jesus looked at those Pharisees knowing what was in their hearts, and it says that he was angered. There is a righteous anger. And Jesus had that righteous anger because those Pharisees were showing such contempt to the people. They didn't have any compassion towards the people. They didn't have any love towards them, desire to really minister to them or shepherd to them. And Jesus was angry about that because of their, their hearts were so hard. And so Jesus said, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? It is. And so here was this anger. The problem with anger is, for you and for me, is yes, the Bible speaks of a righteous anger, but usually for us, it causes us to sin, doesn't it? And so Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, he would say, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And what can happen with us if we don't give it to the Lord when we become angry is it turns into malice and it turns into wrath and turns into bitterness and unforgiveness. And that's why Paul would say, don't sin. Be angry, you're going to get angry. And we can look at the things of the world and the events of the world and what happens to to innocent people, and we get, you know, that angry about that. But don't sin. And so we need to give it to the Lord. And we need to go to Him. And Lord, you help me with these emotions that I'm feeling. And so don't sin with that anger and turning it to malice and wrath and, and, and all of this that can take place and the weirdness that can take place in our lives if we're not careful. And so here was Saul, he, he was angry. The Spirit of God came upon him. And we read in verse 9, And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by this time the sun is hot, you shall have help. And then the messengers came and reported to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. And therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And so good news comes to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. This time tomorrow when the sun is hot you're going to have help you're going to be free and they were glad just go ahead and go tell Nahash you know we'll come out and we'll see you tomorrow and you can do to us what you want but uh, Nahash you're going to get a big surprise tomorrow because as we read in, as in, the, in, in verse um, 7 as I think I skipped over that verse he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and this is Saul hearing the news and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And so the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And when the number of them and Bezek, the children of Israel, were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000, there's going to be 330,000 men that are going to be coming after you, Nahash. 
You were trying to make a name for yourself. You didn't think that anyone was going to help. Well, God is sending 330,000 soldiers that are going to come and wipe you out, Nahash, and defeat you. And as the men of Jabesh Gilead heard that, they were glad. You know, we have opportunity to bring good news to others, don't we? Good news that they don't have to be in bondage to the enemy. They don't have to be ignorant of Satan's devices. That he, he, they can be freed from the enemy and from the world as they surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. As you come and you realize that, you know what? That I am a sinner. And, and I am under the bondage of the world and of the enemy. But Jesus came to free me as he died on Calvary's cross for my sins. He took my sins upon himself as he died for me. And as we come to the Savior of the world and surrender our hearts to him, the Son of God, then we are free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin. We don't have to be ignorant of Satan's devices. As we study God's word, we can walk in God's wisdom. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we should be glad tonight. Those of us who are in Christ, we have reason for gladness and joy. And I understand that we go through difficulties in our lives, don't we? And we go through hard times. And we face loss. And we can grieve. And we can hurt. And we have challenges. But underneath all of that, that we can have a gladness of heart because we belong to Jesus. And we belong to Him. We have forgiveness of sin. We have the hope of heaven. We have relationship with the Father. His promises are true. And that's glorious. And there should be a joy underneath it all. And to know that the Lord, He will not leave us or forsake us. That He'll be with us. And He'll work on our behalf. He has given us victory. Satan has no direct authority over you. He has been stripped of that. Again, Colossians chapter 2. He has been defeated. Death doesn't have a sting over you and me. Death has been defeated by Jesus Christ. And we have reason to be glad. And they are glad. And so verse 11, So it was the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came in the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that not two of them were left together. So the Ammonites are defeated. A great victory for Saul. Again, it's one of the few highlights that we see this chapter for Saul in in the victory that he has against the Ammonites. And then also we see that Saul is going to use some wisdom here or display some wisdom as we continue verse 13, or verse 12, excuse me. And then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Now you think, what is this all about? Who are these men that they're talking about put to death? Well, in chapter 10 that we went over last week, at the end of the chapter, you remember that it was Samuel that came to the people. He called the children of Israel together, and he said, you guys want a king? A king is what you're going to get. And so here he is from the tribe of Benjamin. It is Saul. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. And even though it was Saul that was hiding amongst the people, he was brought out, wasn't he? As we read, and then the people were yelling, long live the king. But at the end of that chapter, of chapter 10, it says there are those who were rebels. And they said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents. They were showing disrespect. 
They said, we're not going to let this guy rule over us. He can't save us. He's no good. And so what we see here now in chapter 11 is this threat came against the children of Israel by the Ammonites, and Saul has gathered this huge army together, brought them victory. So now this victory is given, and so the people are saying, yes, Saul did save us. So those men that were showing disrespect, bring them here and let's put them to death. Let's do them in. We'll show them. That'll teach them to think that way. Saul, you know, disrespect that they showed to him, saying, who can save us? Well, he just displayed some great qualities, didn't he? So that's what this whole deal is all about in verses 12 and 13. But we see that Saul uses some, some, some common sense here and some real, actually, godly wisdom in, in verse 13 when he says that not a man shall be put to death for today the Lord has accomplished salvation for Israel. In other words, what Saul is saying is the focus needs to be on the Lord and the victory that he gave to us. I think there is something that we can think about in this. That perhaps the Lord has spoken to you or to your family about moving in a certain direction and there are those who will say, well, why do you want to do that? You know, and well, who's this God, you know, directing you in this way? And, and then all of a sudden God is blessing you. And I pray that we wouldn't have the attitude of going back to them, just scolding them and, I told you so. You know, kind of, you know, saying face or whatever. And that's kind of what they were doing here. And I pray that as Christians that, and as a church that we would show grace to those that perhaps they may scoff at us, maybe perhaps be doubtful of what we're doing here at Calvary Chapel, what he, the Lord is doing in your life and the direction that he's taken you. But our focus would always be the Lord. And that as we move forward in the things of the Lord, that we would say, you know what? The Lord is working. And you know what? He can work in your life or you can join in with the work that he's doing here at Calvary Chapel. But we would be gentle and respectful. And that we wouldn't have this I told you so kind of attitude towards others. Oh, we warn people, certainly. But we want to be ones that, that we want to encourage them. That God wants to work in your life as well. And, and God desires to do a great work. And he's leading us and guiding us. And so it's something for them to look at. But always keep the focus on the goodness of the Lord. And so we see in verse 14, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and so they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and they made their sacrifice of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So now Saul has the backing of the people, and Samuel's there still with Saul. We're going to see that it's going to be just in a short time that it's going to be Samuel that's going to withdraw himself from Saul's ministry. And so he has the backing of the people as they officially make him king. So we saw in chapter 9 that there was this a private anointing of Saul as the king. In chapter 10, there was this presentation of the king. And then now there's this confirmation from the people that indeed that you are the king. Look what you've just done. And the people are rejoicing. And the Lord brought a great victory. You know, one of the things that I have discovered in ministry over the years is, you know, you can have a title, whether that's an elder, whether that's a deacon, whether that's a pastor, whatever it might be. But what it should be is just confirmation of what God is already doing. 
And the people recognize that. You can say, well, I'm a pastor, but do the people really see that gift and that heart of a pastor being worked out in your life? And if they do, they will confirm it. And they will respond. And sometimes I, I see that once in a while somebody can be given a title, whether it's you know, a deacon or an elder, and, and all of a sudden, I don't know, it can go to their heads if we're not careful. A pastor? But I want to be here as, as your pastor that you can see that, that confirmation of, of me, just, you know, what God is doing in my life, that you can say, yeah, God is using him as a pastor. God is using him as a shepherd. And God is gifting him. And it's the same with you. Whatever ministry God has given you to do, people will see that, and it should be a confirmation of what God is doing in your life. And here we see that the people are saying, yeah, you are a king. Now we're going to see, as we move on now, that it's going to be Saul that's going to be disqualified because he's going to be one that's going to try to perfect what has started in the spirit in the flesh. But as we are just moving in the spirit, that people are going to see the giftings that God has given to you, and it's going to be confirmed as they watch you ministering and moving out in those giftings that God has given to you and the calling that God has put on your life. And so chapter 12, Now Samuel said to all of Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now there is the king walking before you, and, and I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. So we see that Samuel here, he's going to give his, really his last address to the nation as a whole. And he's telling the people that you've asked for a king, and now the king walks among you. You've seen God working through him. He's brought a great deliverance to you and to the children of Israel. It's been confirmed to you that he is operating as a king. So Samuel's saying that my ministry to you began when I was young from childhood. Until now, um, I'm now old and gray-headed. And I've been a leader as a judge, and, and I've moved in the office as a prophet, speaking to God. But now that we are going to see that he's no longer the judge, the people are going to be more looking to Saul, aren't they? They're going to be looking to Saul to really lead them and to guide them. Oh, Samuel's going to continue to operate as that you know, prophet in the land, that spiritual leader. But they're going to be looking more to Saul as the king. And as Samuel's ministering, we're going to see that the crowds are going to get smaller. You know, I think about that, and, and it reminds me of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as we talked about him in Mark's Gospel, remember that as we learned about him, the forerunner to the Messiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, he's at the Jordan, and it says all of... The people were coming from all of Judea and elsewhere to come out to see John, to, to be baptized. And these huge crowds that are out there. There hadn't been a prophet in the land for 400 years. And so the religious leaders were coming out as you read the gospel narratives. And they're coming to John the Baptist. I mean, it was quite a ministry. This, this interesting man with camel's hair, you know, and a leather belt around his waist and eating, you know, locusts and honey. And all these people coming to him. Huge crowds. 
But Jesus, after he was baptized of John the Baptist and would begin his Galilee ministry, the people left John the Baptist and went up into the Galilee region. And now we are reading that there are great multitudes. Matter of fact, we're going to read here in Mark's gospel that Jesus is going to tell the disciples, get a boat ready, lest he be crushed by the crowds that were coming in, pressing in on him as he's doing those healings. So in John's gospel, chapter 3, what we see is that it was John's disciples that were concerned about that. Hey, everybody's leaving you, John, and they're going up to to the Galilee region to follow after Jesus. And John said, that's what needs to happen. I've done my ministry, and that is to point to the one who can take away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. And John would say something that we need to understand. He said that I must decrease and he must increase. And if you and I really want to be effective ministers for the Lord, then there needs to be a dying to self and a true humility that is in our hearts and always a pointing to Jesus Christ. And I know for me to be more effective, for me to move on into maturity, that I must decrease and he must increase, right? that we point people to Jesus because he's the one that saves, he's the one that forgives, he's the one that will live in your heart, he's the one that will empower you, he's the one that will give you life abundantly. I want to point you to Jesus. But whatever God has for you, just be faithful in the ministry that he's called you to do. And maybe the crowds will get smaller. And know that there will be a cost. And perhaps maybe you might lose a friend or two. You might have family members that perhaps don't want to see you as much, whatever it might be. But you point people to Jesus. And I think of Paul the Apostle, the great apostle to the Gentiles and his ministry, and you read the book of Acts and all that has taken place. And at the end of his life, as you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, all have forsaken me. He's there in that dungeon there in Rome. All have forsaken me. Luke is with me, Dr. Luke, who wrote Luke's gospel, wrote the book of Acts. says, send John Mark to me. He's useful to me. And, And Timothy, come quickly. Bring the parchments, the scrolls. Bring my coat because winter's coming. It's cold here. But he said, the Lord is with me. And you see, the crowds got smaller, and Paul found himself at the end of his life really being alone, only few that were with him. You know, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, in the days ahead or uh, the days that the Lord has for me, but I know this, that that whether the crowds get bigger or the crowds get smaller, I just want to be faithful to ministering where God has me and faithful to pointing people towards him. And sometimes in our lives, that means that the crowds get smaller, just as it did with Jesus. Because we're going to see that even though there's great multitudes, that they're going to begin to leave Jesus. And, and, and the crowds are going to get smaller. And so here is Samuel. He's saying, listen, I've, I've been faithful to ministering from I was young to I'm an old man now, gray-headed. And, um, and you're going to be looking to the king is what you're going to be doing. And he goes on, and, and he goes on, and he says in verse 3, Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, and whose donkey have I taken, and whom have I cheated? 
Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received any bride with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. In verse 5, And then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is with witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. And so here he addresses the people. He says, Here I am, witness against me. In other words, I am putting my ministry and my life on the line right now. And this is a chance for you to declare if I've done anything wrong, if I've taken from you, if I have cheated you, if I've done anything wrong, this is your opportunity to say so. And he wasn't boasting here, Samuel. But what he was declaring to the people is, I have ministered to you in godly integrity and godly honesty. I've ministered to you in a way that has honored the Lord. And as I read this, this is real convicting to me. That however long that the Lord has me to minister, that at the end of those days, and I don't know if I'll have opportunity but at least in my heart or that you feel in your hearts. I want to be able to say that, Lord, I've ministered with godly integrity and godly character in a way that honored you, Lord, that I didn't take from the people, I didn't cheat them, I didn't cheat them from the word of God. And I want to say that, and I know that the Lord's working in me, and I know I can't do it apart from the Lord. But I hope that all of us, that that we have that kind of heart. Lord, I want to be that man, that woman of godly character and integrity and honesty to whoever it is that you minister to. And that you're not, you know, focused on yourself and out for yourself or, you know, whatever it might be. But Lord, everything that I do in every area of my life, I want to honor you. And I want to give to the people that I minister to. The people that are linked to me in my life. And I want to be able to do the same thing. And I think that takes a real dying to self and saying, Lord, work that humility in me and help me not to live my life where I'm focused on me. But Lord, help me be that person that honors you as I minister to others. And that at the end of our lives, that consciously we can say, you know what, Lord, I did my very best and I committed the rest to you. And Lord, I desired in my heart to do the very best that I could, not in a boasting kind of way, but thanking the Lord that, Lord, that you did a marvelous work and giving glory to him. It reminds me of Daniel. We just went over Daniel. And, you know, as you go through Daniel's book, remember how many times that we saw that in Daniel was an excellent spirit an excellent spirit. There was that, that spirit of God in Daniel that, that even the unbelievers recognized. And it was there in chapter 6 that those administrators of the Medes and the Persians that were trying to find fault with Daniel, they found him to be blameless. They couldn't find any fault with him. I know one of the convictions for me as I read is this Word of God says that as an overseer that I'm to be blameless. It doesn't mean that you are to be perfect or I'm to be perfect. 
The only one that was ever perfect is Jesus. Perfect is a pretty high standard that none of us can obtain. But what Paul is saying to Timothy in those qualifications of an overseer is that an overseer is to be blameless. In other words, everything that I do, I want to do it in such a way that it honors you, Lord, that somebody can't just point out and begin to say, well, you're you know, not being honest here. You're not doing this with integrity. You're not doing this out of godly character. But to really pray and say, Lord, does this honor you? Does this represent what is good and right before you? And I think that's a good thing for all of us to do in our lives. That when we come to the end of our lives, that we can say, Lord, I did give all to you and laid it at your feet. Oh, I know I made mistakes and I wasn't perfect. But every day that we would come to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to move out as a man or woman of God in that integrity and character in a way that pleases you. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And Lord, I do pray tonight as we end the service. Lord, there's so many lessons that we saw in these few verses that we looked at. And Lord, I pray that right now, your people, you have done such a marvelous work and drawing us to yourself and saving us, forgiving us of our sins, that we do come into this place with gladness. Gladness of heart that we've been set free from the enemy. That Satan has no more power over us or has us in bondage that we can see clearly we're not blinded. Father, I do pray if there's anyone here that's never surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ, that they would know that the only way to salvation, the only hope of heaven, is to confess that they're a sinner. We've all sinned, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And as you recognize that you are a sinner, that the Savior of the world is Jesus Christ who's provided a way of forgiveness as he went to Calvary's cross and died for your sins. He's the only one that died for you. He lived a perfect life. And he went to the cross. And he became sin for us. He bore our sins upon himself and died in your place that you might have true forgiveness. But you need to confess that you are a sinner. And the Bible says that you need to repent that is quit going the direction that you're going and turn to Jesus Christ. Surrender your heart to him and ask for forgiveness and believe that he's the son of God who died for you, was put into a tomb, and he rose again after three days. And Lord, I feel that I need to give that message here tonight because perhaps somebody needs to hear that message that the good news is Jesus Christ loves you and died for you. You need to surrender and turn your heart to him. And you need to confess that you're a sinner and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as you know that he is the son of God who died for you and rose again. And you pray in your heart, Jesus, 
be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me in my sins. I have sinned. And I come to you and I confess that and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. Save me. Be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying on Calvary's cross for me and I believe that you're alive today. And Father, I pray if anybody prayed that prayer in their heart that they would desire right now to walk with you all the days of their life. They would truly be a living faith that they are expressing from their hearts. And Father, I pray for all of us that, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would desire to be men and women, that, that we would walk in godly integrity and honesty, Lord, in gentleness and in love, dying to self, and, Lord, exalting you. And, Lord, there would be a gladness in our hearts, and people would see it in our countenance, because we have opportunity to bring light into a dark world and the darkness of people's life, and give them the greatest news proclaimed ever, and that is Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus Christ saves and forgives. And Father, I pray that we would be ones that we would share that with others. And as we grieve, as we see how the serpent holds people in bondage and blinds them,